0: does a family office invest, our guest today is Stephanie Long, Group Deputy CIO and Head of Stash Away Hong Kong. She'll share her experience managing family offices and starting a hedge fund in Hong Kong. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, be sure to subscribe and consider leaving us a review and sharing it with your friends. Welcome to another episode of In Your Best Interest, your personal finance podcast. With us today is Stephanie Long. Stephanie is the head of Stashway Hong Kong and Group Deputy CIO. Stephanie has more than 17 years of experience in managing multi-asset portfolios globally for Goldman Sachs, as well as for institutional investors and family offices. Her expertise in global macro and quantitative investing has enabled her to effectively manage multi-billion dollar portfolios for her clients. Prior to finance, she began her career at McKinsey & Company advising companies in the Asia-Pacific region. Stephanie earned her master's in computer science in artificial intelligence from Stanford University and a bachelor of science in computer engineering from the University of Michigan. Welcome to the show, Stephanie. How are
1: you doing? I'm good. How are you, Philippe?
0: I'm, I'm very good. I'm very good. And I'm Uh, Very excited. Obviously, the the listeners, as as I said, you're working with me at Stash Away, so we've known each other for quite a bit, but uh, obviously more on the, um, since we never met in person due to COVID, um, more more on the work, uh, work side of things. So I'm really, really excited actually, you know, to get to know you a little bit better more um, well, from a personal standpoint and kind of like, you know, work a little, walk a little bit through your career and see how you, you know, ended up at Stashway and um, what you think about investing in general, and, uh, which will be super interesting for our listeners to learn from someone that, you know, worked in that industry for so long and in different uh, ways, such as institutional investing, as well as with family offices, which we haven't really discussed yet. Uh, we've done private equity, right? We have done, um, VC investing, but we really didn't um, effectively talk about uh, family offices yet. So very excited about that.
1: That's great.
0: What I always ask everyone on the show is, um, what did you do with your first paycheck? Because it is a personal finance podcast. So what was kind of like the first, you know, paycheck or the first time you had an experience with money? Like maybe it was like the first time you got an allowance from your parents or something, right? What was that something that maybe made like an impression on you when it comes to personal finances?
1: yeah actually I mean that was um that was that was like actually a great question because it actually relates to my first experience uh with investment as well so I remember when I was maybe about six seven years old my father used to have a a Apple computer like back in the days this was in what the eighties so it was a mac two uh and then he had this this was when like the keyboard was still attached to the computer, so it was one thing uh, and he had this program that he asked uh, his brother to program, because his brother is a programmer, that tracks like stock prices. And they've developed some sort of uh, algorithm to actually uh, generate trading signals, like when to buy, when to sell, et cetera. And then he needed somebody to enter the daily prices of uh, major stocks uh, into the computer. So that was actually my first job. My first job was actually to uh, take the newspaper uh, at the end of the day, every day. At let's say, I mean, after my school, at around six o'clock before dinner, uh, manually enter uh, stock prices, like ending prices for 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 the list of stocks that he tracks.
0: Oh, that's I mean, awesome!
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like re- really, really intrigued. Um, I loved, uh, I love anything that had to do with like computers or like electronics. Uh, and then I, I guess that's how I developed maybe my first uh, interest in, in the stock market investment.
0: Yeah, no, super interesting. What, what age were you at that time, He said?
1: I don't remember, like early junior school, so maybe six, seven, eight. I, oh, I don't wow. Know, okay, I don't know. long, long time. <laughs> yeah, long, okay, long, that's, long time that's
0: super interesting. Yeah, so you got an early experience there in investing. That's the that's a, that's a first one that someone mentioned this one. So that that's super interesting. And um, obviously, then you go to university and you study computer engineering and then computer science in your master's. So how... Did you not go straight for finance if you already had that experience and you were intrigued by it early on? So what, what was the process like in making that decision to be uh, going for engineering and going overseas, right, to the U.S.?
1: Yeah, yeah. I had quite a lot of uh, different interests. And so I actually thought in, in university, I actually thought about doing um, either computer science or uh, business because I had a interest in, in finance and business. Or actually, something that is quite different. I was thinking about doing architecture. So I, I I loved playing Legos and I loved um, just my building models. <laughs> uh, and I had to choose between the three. Um, and then um, I, I I mean I I consulted people. Right. Um, uh, I was very lucky to have uh, met somebody who was in the architecture um, firm. Uh, and I mean, what he told me was, I mean, it's fun. Um, But then you get to draw, you have to draw like doors for 10 years before you can like draw windows. And I was like, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I thought about like kind of um, the reason why I love computer programming is because I can build something um, very, very easily and quickly and without needing a lot of resources. So I thought, okay, finance business, I can probably learn on the side, um, but Computer science programming is what I what I was really passionate about, and building something on a computer is so much more easier than building something using brick and mortar. Um, and I actually studied computer science both as an undergrad and as and, and in my masters. In fact, I I was actually uh, specializing in AI uh, when I was doing my masters at Stanford. Uh, that was year two thousand one, right? Way, way, way before AI had become where it is right now, where it's applicable to many different fields. And you have like all these breakthroughs in AI. So back then I was learning actually natural language processing. Um, I was trying to develop like um, uh, some sort of, I remember one of my internships was actually about uh, developing a phone answering system um, that could, uh, that could let people play games and sort through them. So I mean, AI was a uh, very, very preliminary. And then I think it was the, so when I was at Stanford, I did like during the last summer, I did an internship in Japan. And uh, the moment I stepped out of the plane, I felt like oh, I'm back at home, even though I wasn't in Hong Kong. It was just Asia. The air felt Asian. Like the air felt like there was energy. So I decided that um, I mean, of, of course, like being in California was all fine and great, and uh, it was a great life, uh, but. It felt a bit slow, right? So I decided the moment that I stepped in in that Tokyo airport, I decided that I need to come back to Asia because if I have to start my career somewhere, I mean, Asia is the place to be. So then I tried to look for things to do while I'm if I have to return to Hong Kong. And, frankly speaking, as a computer science major back then, there wasn't that many choices. I, I spoke to my friends uh, in in banks, and it, there was plenty of jobs, but a lot of that is. Uh, not frontline jobs. I wanted to I knew that I wanted to be frontline, I wanted to be creating something, and I didn't want to be um, uh, I guess middle office or back office. So one of my friends actually introduced me to uh, McKinsey. Uh, he was like, "Oh, there's this uh, consulting company you may want to try They're hiring." So I was like, okay, fine,'ll I'll, I'll go interview. But then I luckily I got into McKinsey and I started my consulting career there. Um, two years afterwards, I really thought that I needed to focus on a, a one domain and I felt like because I did computer science already, finance, investing is the other passion I have, which I didn't have a chance to explore. So again, uh, through a uh, friendly connection, I got introduced to the Goldman Sachs uh, strategy group in Asia and uh, got a job there and started as a research analyst um that's kind of how it all how it all started how
0: how he got into the financial industry yeah super interesting and i think this is where we obviously want to kind of focus on today as well because you know uh, after being an analyst i know you also were a trader right so um maybe we can actually start there because being a trader is something completely different than being a deputy chief investment officer at stash away right so that that kind of like shift from from being a trader to to um to being a long-term investor that went on for many years right and so i think for like i said for, for for people on the on the podcast it's probably very very interesting to see also the trading side and then what you made you come over so maybe we start by exploring a little bit what you know life was like as a trader now in in goldman sachs like what did you even do
1: yeah, that that was. Uh, now I think about it, that was over ten years ago. Um, it was. I was actually in my late twenties, um, and it was. It was actually a very interesting environment. So we were all on like this, a, a trading floor with rows and rows of tables. We we're sitting kind of arm to arm next to each other. My uh, MD, who was, was my boss, was actually sitting right next to me. Every morning we had to go into the office by six fifty, and and I mean they were very very strict on time. Right, I remember being late for one minute one day, and I had a really really bad day. That day. I I, that, I uh, my boss actually was uh, pretty harsh to me um, on 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 being on time. But anyway, we start the day six fifty, and uh, we have some we would have a traders meeting. Uh, talking about kind of what happened um the night before, like how our ls have changed like overnight, et cetera. And then we also have like a sales meeting where the whole floor kind of talk about what we're gonna um tell clients about today, what are some of the research topics that 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 are of importance. And then we start the day uh basically trading, right? Hong Kong starts so I was actually um trading the Hong Kong China portfolio. So what we did, um we were we were called we were so-called prop desk in the bank. And um, we basically manage the bank's uh, equities positions to facilitate, uh, number one, to facilitate client flows. So if a client wants to buy and sell, uh, we take the other side of that flow. Let's say a client wants to sell something, sell some stocks, uh, but they don't want to sell in the market. So they come to our desk and we would give them a, a price. Like I'll, I'll tell them, oh, for that, amount of stock, sometimes it's not very liquid, right? For some stocks or it's a very, very large quantity that if they offload, it would impact um, the, the the actual share prices. So they will come to us and I will give them a price um, and I will take the stock. So, And then we'll try to also find the other side, try to find a client who is willing to, to buy from us. But we, being a facilitation desk, we facilitate the trade. And to facilitate this trade successfully, um, of course, I mean, we, we, we take the spread, but also sometimes we have to take uh, risk positions uh, overnight or over a period of time. So then we have to take a um, a, a position on how we think that stock or that, that particular instrument will perform during the time that we have to hold it or long it or short it. So that is um, that involves kind of having views on markets, having views on stocks, and then also um a, a, a part of my job was actually to manage just the firm's uh, own money right because we we also are assigned a a a a, a block of money that we need to make p- uh, profit out of so that was actually my first um i guess professional investing experience but it was very very short term right sometimes we hold things for a few hours sometimes we hold things for a day and for some positions, I mean we can hold for like weeks, right? But every day, or actually every hour, uh, I remember there was an email going around like the whole floor telling us how the PL was for each trader. So, so it very was, competitive. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was actually yeah, very, very high pressure because your boss and your peers and even your uh subordinates, your analysts, actually see all the P uh, for everyone. And sometimes it's—I mean—in—in in, in the short term, uh, the fluctuations are hard to hard to estimate, right? Um,
0: yeah.
1: It's it's actually a, a random walk uh, in my view in in a very very short run. But um, but then you have to manage these volatilities, so then risk management actually became very important. And I think that's kind of where I learned about risk management. Uh, it's a very very strange job, right? Because I think there aren't, I mean, in most of the jobs, you start your day, you go in, you put in hours, you know, you're adding value. Right? You know, you've, you're adding value to the company, you're adding value to society or whatever. Right. But being a trader, you never know like, at the start of the day, whether if by going into work, you're going to create value or destroy value. Uh, and uh, of course, I mean, I, you make money some on some days and you lose money on some days. And on the days that um, you lose money, you go home feeling like oh i've actually i actually shouldn't have gone to work i by not going to work i actually wouldn't made have made that wrong decision i wouldn't uh, uh be destroying value but uh yeah it was there was a lot of decisions that we needed to make, and i mean obviously some of them were good, some of them were bad um but it, it, yeah it it, it it actually i think at the end of the day what it taught me was it was extremely difficult to make money in a in a short term trading environment. Um, I think what's sustainable, what's more sustainable for 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 that experience at least, was the longer term positions or the more fundamental research that we had time to do that allowed us to um, take the right risk, i.e., when we have the right view and it's um, it, it it's for example, is against consensus or allows us to um, take on a big position, then, I mean, those are things that we made the most money on. But most of the time, I still remember there was one trader who, in the morning, you like, would go in, put in two trades. Uh, one is a buy trade, one is a sell trade on HSI futures. <laughs> Every morning. Uh, I don't know what, what, what the, um, I don't know what the rationale is, but I mean, he was basically trying to capture the spread, right? If there's like a fluctuation that he captures that spread. But at the end of the day, does that make money? No. So yeah, I think it, it, yeah, it it was definitely, uh, uh, very, yeah, very, very, very interesting environment
0: very interesting environment and then obviously you go from trading then right um being a trader at goldman sachs to becoming an entrepreneur and a co-founder by starting a hedge fund right so what was that mindset did, uh, is this something why did you leave because goldman sachs obviously everyone that's like if you're in investment banking and trading that's kind of the pinnacle of where people want to be right so how why did you just decide to go out on your own or with a co-founder so obviously with some partners right to yeah. start a hedge fund yeah And yeah, what was even the strategy then inside the hedge fund that you were pursuing?
1: Yeah, I think I was in in my uh, 30s, uh, 30 year old, uh, 31. (laughs) Uh, It was like probably too young, too foolish. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But uh, I I guess, I mean, when I think about what happened, um, so I was actually uh, going into um, Goldman every day working as a short term trader, right? Uh, one day, I just found that I wasn't interested in the job anymore. I I, I lost uh, I lost my passion for it because I think at the time, I mean Goldman was also transitioning from a proprietary focused firm into a more agency focused firm. I.e., we were trying to do a lot more sales work than risk management work. I.e., like taking like uh, investing work for me, uh, and uh, I mean I. I I went into the role uh, being super interested in investing but not so interested in selling so I was finding it if I had to spend like 70 80 percent of my time like being a sales like that's not what I enjoy. and then there was this opportunity from a uh, from I guess a, a, a family office that was that wanted to invest in uh, a hedge fund that me and my colleague were trying to stop so our idea was that Because if you look at uh, hedge funds, so I mean, for people who are not familiar with hedge funds, what hedge fund does, uh, there are many different strategies. One of them is called uh, equity fundamental long shot, i.e. you take, let's say 40 different positions in uh, different equities. Some of them are long positions, some of them are short positions, and you try to hedge out the market risk by going long and short at the same time or varying your like long short ratio. Um, it's, it's one of the most popular strategy in the hedge fund world. And, um, I mean, people charge a lot for it, right? There's usually like a 2% management fee and then 20% performance fee. So hedge fund managers, if you're good, you actually make a lot of money because it's a very, very steep, uh, uh, return
0: Yeah, you hear, always hear the stories right <laughs> about but about the hedge fund managers like kind of running the world right so when, yeah, when it comes exactly. to the finance world because of those fee schedules right because they're still making the two percent
1: yeah. and if
0: they're doing well they're making a lot of money right
1: exactly exactly so i mean that was the allure of like starting my own hedge fund because i capture yeah. the whole upside and also i can focus a hundred percent on investing uh, and not having to deal with, um, I guess uh, the, the fundraising the, the part. Right? I, actually, I had to do the fundraising part. Okay. And that was actually the hard part. But versus working in Goldman, uh, I didn't have to do the like the daily meetings that starts at like six fifty. I didn't have to do the sales job, etc. Uh, actually, little that I know, I had to actually do more sales job than before. But back then, um, and then also there was this opportunity that came by. Like somebody actually wanted to invest in our hedge fund. Which um, which we had a novel idea, so we wanted to do a top-down macro-based hedge fund that invest in equities. So it was quite different because most of the equity long-short funds are bottom-up, i.e., the, the 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 fund manager would pick each individual company based on the company's like fundamentals, financials, like they meet with management, etc. So the hedge fund that uh, we wanted to start was actually a top-down hedge fund because I'm a, from a macro background um, uh, when I was doing research. And then also my uh, co-founder was also an a economist. So we have this idea that or we have done a lot of studies showing that most of the returns actually come from a, having the right macro view, having the right top-down view. Uh, so we, we had the, uh, we wanted to start a hedge fund where we drive the investment decisions from top down, but then we express it using stocks. I.e., let's say, I mean, we're, for example, we're in a economic recovery and we wanted to go along the cyclical sectors of the market. So we, in the cyclical sectors, we pick the stocks, um, that, uh, that are, that are early cycle, right? We've picked a few of these. And then we go short of um, some of the uh, interest rate sensitive stocks. Let's say, I mean, utilities, right? That way we can actually express our macro tilt using a long, short um, equity allocation. So that was the idea. And then one, uh, one of the one of the, uh, big investors in mainland China found it to be very interesting. So he said, okay, if you guys start this, I'll, I'll fund it. Um, the month that we started it, uh, so after we got everything set up, the money actually Um, uh, never came. And the investor said, oh, I actually couldn't travel. Uh, My son can't travel to Hong Kong as well, so sorry, but I can't fund this. Uh, So we ended up, we still ended up starting a hedge fund, but uh, with uh, most of the friends and family money and we were trying to raise money along the way. Hmm. Uh, And having to actually manage a portfolio, uh, running a startup, and then also trying to raise money at the same time with only two people, that were extremely extremely difficult. It was extremely humbling, right? Because in Goldman, in a large organization, everything is taken care of. Whereas in a startup, you have to do everything. Um, uh, and 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 I mean, I, and and but we did manage to get a lot of support from our friends and other banks. So, I mean, we we actually ran the hedge fund for about two years. Um, afterwards, uh, my co-founder decided it was uh sales was actually going back to a bank was more f- more for her career so she went back to become an economist. Uh I then went on to actually start a multifamily office with another ex-Goldman colleague uh who was trying to I mean start her own venture with some very very big family offices in Hong Kong.
0: Hmm. And that's super interesting. I think that thank you for explaining this because I think we also never really talked about the hedge fund world yet on the podcast, so that that's a very good entry episode. I think we can almost have another episode <laughs> just on on the on the hedge fund world. But yeah, you mentioned already, so then you move over to a family office, right? right. Um, and then now, obviously a family office, less trading than at the hedge fund, uh, yeah. even less much less trading than at the, as a goldman trader. You're slowly starting to get into that investing more long term uh, and things like that. So, how is the family office different from your Goldman Sachs and hedge fund experience when it comes to that uh, investment um, strategies?
1: Yeah, I think um, so. I, I worked at a multi family office as well as a single family office. So, multi family office is basically a company, uh, as a management company, where several um, I guess families pull together the assets uh, for the asset manager to manage. Single family office obviously is just one single family. I think there are a few things that are common uh, that I see among these family offices, right? Number one is that they focus a lot more on asset allocation rather than trying to capture every market ups and downs. Um I mean we would at the multifamily office we would give updates to our clients maybe every month or every some for some clients every three months.
0: When you say and multi multifamily, how many families were um, in that off family office roughly?
1: So in our multifamily office there were about six to eight families.
0: Six to eight, okay. Yes. Yeah.
1: Um a, a lot of them actually yeah, are businessmen in Hong Kong with like traditional or or like property businesses. So these are yeah, big big family offices. Um, but they, they, I mean, they when they every month or every three months when they review the portfolio, uh, they're always interested in hearing. I mean, what the macroeconomic environment is, because for them that is the the first driver. They're not interested. I mean, then they're not as interested in finding, let's say, I mean, the next stock that will triple or even quadruple.
0: Do you think more so in family offices? Is it more wealth preservation? or at that stage
1: yeah I think that's that's one of course obviously I mean when you already have a huge amount of money yeah. you're looking for stable returns you're not looking to to I guess to to, to become super super rich anymore yeah uh, I mean having said that there's obviously a range of risk tolerance yes. <laughs> so I mean one very very popular strategy among the family offices or the higher risk ones is is to to, to lever up to buy bonds, Never, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you buy like a high yield bond, because they, I mean, they feel, it, it also plays to um, your strength as well, right? For example, for some family offices, which are very into the deep into the Chinese property uh, sector, because they know it, that's a network. They are very comfortable uh, buying these Chinese high yield bonds, which are by uh, returning six to 8% per annum and, and, and leverage that like two times, for example to get 15% uh, return because they, they feel that they know like, everything about that company.
0: Yeah. Now,
1: for, of course, I mean, for like, a lot of investors, I mean, myself included, I don't have that access to, to those like tycoon levels. So when I'm not that comfortable, that is a different risk that I have to consider. So um, uh, I would say, I mean, back to your question, Philippe, I, I think, yes, to a certain extent, I mean, they they're looking for high single digit returns mostly. Uh, uh, but they're also looking for sustainable returns, right? It's like single digit returns year after year after year. Uh, They are also very, very mindful about drawdowns. Um, So when they think about risk, they think in terms of the, the, I mean, the the maximum drawdown that they can withstand. I remember when I was working for the single family office, actually they had a previous investment team Um, And the problem that they had was there was no defined risk limits, i.e., for example, when they were thinking about the equity allocation, it could swing a lot, right? It could swing anywhere between, let's say, I mean, plus 50% to minus 30% of the portfolio. And that created a lot of discomfort with the family because they didn't know what kind of risk they're taking, right? They didn't know what are the parameters. Think about my drawdowns where I mean where is where where is my maximum like how much more money when when I'm losing money how much more money can I lose uh so the first thing that I did when I started working for that single family office was to create a strategic uh, asset uh, allocation plan I so when we think about asset allocation there's two types strategic uh, which corresponds to your risk which is pretty much like what we ask our investor now at the at Statuary, your Statuary risk index, and then using your risk parameter. So that was actually exactly what I did. I asked the family, so what is the maximum drawdown that you can withstand in a, in a bad scenario? And then they gave me a number, right? They gave me a percentage and I worked backwards to optimize for them. Of course they gave me some other constraints as well. For example, we had some private equity allocation. We have some hedge fund allocation. So, I mean, let's say we wanted to still re- remain, retain like 30% in illiquids alternatives. Then, I mean, we have 70% to allocate to public um, uh, like securities. That includes like bonds, equities, uh, commodities, uh, weeds, etc. So then I work back to optimize for a strategic asset allocation for the family, given the risk. That strategic allocation... Don't change unless the family's risk appetite changes. So we will review it every year to see if their family needs have changed or if their risk appetite have changed. If not, then we keep that strategic asset allocation. And then on top of that, we will have a tactical asset allocation, which is actually very, very similar to ERA, uh, what we have right now. And uh, the tactical asset allocation corresponds to changing macroeconomic environments. And we would allow for swings uh, from that uh, strategic asset allocation to correspond to the changes in the environment. So i.e., for example, let's say we agree on a strategic allocation of equity of, let's say, 20%, right? Uh, and then within that 20% plus minus, let's say, 5%, we allow for that uh, deviation given how we think the forward macro environment would be. And that makes up the tactical allocation. Then the next step is to look at each bucket. Let's say, I mean, equities, what are the different sectors, ETFs, securities that we invest in? If you have a a big family office, so like the the single family office and a multi-family office that I was running had about, I mean, six to eight people in the investment team. Then I mean we have the resources, right? So we can have people looking at specific securities. Let's say I wanted to have five percent in U.S. technology, I had an analyst that could drill into the companies and pick the stock for me. Um, but an easy way to do it, of course, is to use ETFs. Uh, that I would I would say, frankly, I'm in a difference. It maybe is twenty percent, but having that sort of an allocation risk framework in mind that's a holistic way to think about a portfolio because in, no
0: absolutely yeah. yeah no no go ahead so what, what i wanted to uh if i take it a step back and actually say okay so you did the you know you did like more the public markets part of the family office right but let's say a family usually business owners right or you said you know make money in real estate right do you also then have a meeting with the because in a family office, that's part of the family office, right? They look at everything the family does, right? From taxations, tax strategies, estate planning, to equities. But maybe, like you said, they they might have ninety percent of the net worth is still in the family business or in in real estate. If they, you know, that's where they make their money in. So did you look from that level and look at diversification as a whole? So when, you know, like, for example, what I like to do is when I do financial planning with clients on a one-to-one basis over the family, I like to look at everything from the top. Yes. And then say, hey, yes, I'm not the specialist in real estate, but we, you can have one, you know, that, you know, do your real estate stuff. But because a lot of times people are, overly concentrate on what they're good at right so yeah, for sure <laughs> you know startup employees you know like the you know right place right time you know having a lot of stocks in one company getting more shares every year by bonuses right or the you know, real estate investors they have like 90% is real estate but yeah. is that something why the families also then employ you and then like how much does that all factor in right because yes you can have a drawdown on the liquid like the, the public market side but Maybe the other side is up, right? So how did you guys uh, manage that?
1: I think I think that's a great point. Um, it it of course, it differs from family to family, right? Yeah, but uh, that goes into the strategic asset allocation as well. So if there were things that we would not invest in because let's say the the family is already heavily invested in um, let's say the family is heavily invested in property. Um, so they don't want to be investing in property anymore in their investment portfolio, and we set that out uh, clearly when we first start the uh, start the engagement. Uh, on the other side, I mean, there are families who just wanted to invest in properties, right? They, I mean, they yeah. just wanted to have the, all the assets in 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 one sector because they feel like they know the they know the network, they know what's going on. So there's a, there's, and, and there's nothing much that you can do about it, right? You can advise them all day that, oh, you should diversify, you should diversify. But if, I mean, if, if they really know what they're doing, then, I mean, that's how, I guess also it relates to the first generation, the, the difference between the first generation and the second generation as well. When I was working for, like, with, with second generations, I think they're much more well trained in finance. They're much more well-trained in sort of understanding portfolio theory, the benefits of diversification. So they tend to have a more portfolio type of mindset, right? They tend to more think about, oh, if I'm already taking so much risk in my business in, let's say, uh, uh, food and beverage, do I still want to be investing my public portfolio in food and beverage? What I've seen is like a second generation likes to diversify in their private equity investment or in the public equity investment, let's say a lot of them are interested in investing in tech because they, I mean, their, their family business is completely different. Uh, but for, there's, for the first generation, they have a slightly different mindset because they were the one that they basically made a whole fortune from one thing that they're very, very good at. So they didn't, they didn't make the money from a portfolio perspective, right? They, For the business, they really put, I guess they invest 100% of the time and money into it and they succeeded, which is why given their background, they were much more comfortable with like staying with what they're good at. But I would also think that uh, there's a selection bias here because I mean, these people are successful, of course, because they... They're good at what they've done. Um, They were at the right place at the right time. I'm thinking for maybe for a hundred people that are like for many people that have done the same thing, probably only one, let's say one out of a hundred would have succeeded and become the first generation of the head of the family office. There are many, many others who were too concentrated, put all the money and and sweat into one thing and did not succeed that I, I never got to meet. So I, I guess yeah, that that may be a, a kind of slight difference between the, yeah. the people who have made it and as a first generation and people who are trying to I guess be a bit more prudent and be a bit more conservative, but have a bigger chance of succeeding or maintaining their wealth.
0: No, absolutely. So so then you do you, you're in a in a um in a nice job, right? Running uh, running um a family office as a, a chief investment officer, right? What did you make then completely, you know, pivot your career again and go into the, you know, from a, probably a nice paying job to yeah. a startup like Stashway? Like, how did that come about?
1: So, yeah, this is another uh, pretty interesting story. I think I, I always think that if I think back in life, uh, there are many things that happened and everything happened for a good reason. So um, I actually left the single family office in 2019. Uh, I was actually turning 40 at the time, and I thought to myself, actually, I, I, I love snowboarding, and I actually co-founded a ski school, a snowboard snow sports school in Niseko, with um, with an ex-colleague from McKinsey. So uh, I was thinking um, maybe it's a good time for me to take a break in my career and spend half a year in, in Niseko, um, like just. I've never had the chance to really refine my snowboarding skills, so it would be great. Uh, and then also we can like kind of run, run the school together in a circle for, for about six months. Uh, and then I could travel around the world, like ski in Whistler, uh, and then maybe stay a few months in, in Europe as well. I mean, staying in a place for a few months is always something that I wanted to do. Yeah. So, uh, so it was year 2000, uh, March. Uh, I was actually uh, snowboarding in Whistler, uh, and that was third week of March. Which is a beautiful place. It was a beautiful place. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but they they had to shut it down because of COVID. So I actually bought my tickets, came back to Hong Kong, and I was uh, being put into home quarantine for two weeks. By the uh, I think by the by the eighth day or tenth uh, ninth day, I thought to myself, "Oh, actually, I mean, this is not looking good because I think COVID is going to stay with us for a long time." <laughs> And my plan—it was actually not going to work out.
0: <laughs> so
1: then, I, I mean, I started pinging my friends again, um, uh, and like just seeing I mean, what what people are up to, and if, if there's anything I can like help with, like while, while I'm stuck in Hong Kong. So a very very good friend of mine who uh, works at BlackRock, he, uh, he he wrote back and he said, "Oh, actually, I'm interested in meeting with this startup, uh, fintech startup in Singapore." I think they're looking for somebody uh, to start the business in Hong Kong. And I think you guys may, may have a good match. So I was like, okay, yeah, this sounds interesting. I mean, startup is, obviously, I try to start up my own, um, my own hedge fund. I started a school. So it was, I mean, startup is something that I've always wanted to do and always been interested in doing. Um, and I thought to myself, why not, right? Uh, it's it's so easy it was a zoom call because i i mean i didn't even have to change my shorts i could just put on my suit and and here i go like job interview so i met with uh, mikelly who's our ceo um and i think instantly i've i've, I've i felt like i found my next move I, my 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 next mission uh in in life uh i mean and, and then and then of course that one uh zoom call turned into many other zoom calls with like the c-suite at at Stashaway and also other people at Stashaway, uh, I remember we were still like actually below fifty people back then. Now we, are of course, over one hundred and seventy. Yes. But uh, I know crazy yeah, growth, <laughs> crazy growth. But but I, I felt that number one to me, people is the most important thing uh, in a startup company, right? Because the, your, your your strategy can change, your products can change, but then the people wouldn't change. And everybody I met with at Stashaway. Number one had um, had the same goal, like share. We share we share the same value of like really trying to empower people to build wealth over the long term, and that actually echoes with my values very well. And then secondly, uh, the company is super transparent. I would say that in all the companies that I work for, I've never come across a company like Stashway. Like the way that we 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 we, we communicate. Um, the way that uh, like the whole management, is so humble and and transparent. I think it's is very very unique. Uh, so, but anyway, after f- like many Zoom calls, I, I joined Stashway and decided to to I mean start uh, Hong Kong uh, for the company.
0: Yeah, no, and we're we're very happy to have you, of course. And um, with that being said, though all of this experience that you have, right. And all these different, uh, different uh, companies, different jobs you've done, everything in investing uh, and some management consulting, of course. Right.
1: Yeah. But
0: what are some of the biggest takeaways and lessons, right. That actually shape your own personal investment. This is a personal finance podcast, right. So people always look for, you know um, opportunities or ways to refine and, you know, better their personal finances and their personal investment strategies. So, How does this all shape yours and where do you, you know, how do you set up your portfolio nowadays?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the, actually one thing that I, I would say one thing that I wished I learned when I was 24 or 25, when I first started out was to think about, um, long-term investing in terms of compound returns, like the power of compound interest. Because back in, I was actually having, just having this conversation two days ago with uh, another ex-Goldman colleague who's now semi-retired. And I was talking to her about compound interest that we, I mean, we, we preach at Statuary every day. I was like, I wish that when we started, I mean, actually somebody at Goldman would have taught me that if I just make, like, let's say 8% return a year and consistently make that for 20 years, I mean, I would have my, uh, my, my, my my initial investment. Nobody told us that. Right? We, were, we, were, we were just focusing on, oh, okay, making money today and making, uh, like thinking about, oh, making a lot of money in a very, very short time because like, bonus was ev- what everyone cared about back then. Like, it was the, yeah. the good old days when I mean, your bonus would, would really make a difference. Yes. So, and then, and then my, my Goldman colleague was like, yeah, yeah. Like, nobody actually taught us about compound interest. And if I think back, if I ever started like a good Kind of investing habit of uh, regularly doing it, regularly just I mean uh, investing and saving uh, systematically. I mean by systematically, I mean I mean not necessarily uh, using an algo, but having a habit of of consistently investing. Uh, I would have made, I guess, I mean even much more than than I have right now because of the power of time.
0: What did you do with the money back in the days? Did you start investing that in real estate? Did you save it? Did you spend it? Did you? Or uh, maybe a mix of everything? But like, how did? Or, or did you start trading on it, right? Because that's what your job was. So, h- how did that change then?
1: I mean, to be honest, so away, fifty percent of our users are from the financial industry, right? Yes. I think there's a good reason for it because when you're managing money for others, you actually don't take good care of yourself. Any yeah. other day, I'm so yeah, I've it. Too many times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Plus so it's also of...
0: very painful, right? The problem, yeah. one of the p- problems I always face, is like, you know, even if you want to put in a trade, it goes through compliance. It takes forever, right? And it's not a nice thing to do. So every, like, if you just have it, like an ETF where it doesn't have to go or like a managed strategy, it's so much easier, yes. right?
1: Yes, exactly. Right. I, I mean, it's so easy to like, just kind of put it away, make excuses, um and and not to di- not be just dis- disciplined about it because I, I yeah it's 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 uh I, I think at when you're i mean at the end of the day you get so tired of of managing money for other people and then also I, there's this mindset of, oh i'm gonna make a lot I, i'm gonna make it back so i can spend it um and i don't really have to think about the long-term plan because i'm so so young Uh, what I didn't realize is that if you don't start young, I mean that, that time that your money can work for you is gone forever. So, um, I mean, yeah, this is also, I mean, we have a very, very young company, right? The average age in in our company is like 27, 28. So this is like something that I would love to speak to all of our, 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 employees as well. Like think about your money early on have, I've had good habits um and that and, compound and, interest to its yeah, work compound, right compound <laughs> interest is the most 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 powerful thing in finance and it's so underappreciated um yeah. uh, i mean it's it was, like i remember in 2007 yeah well you asked me like what we we're trading right i was actually yeah we were trading warrants as a it, it, within the investment team so my boss was actually buying warrants and uh, he told us oh why don't we, like, you guys can, can look at these warrants as well. I mean, obviously, I made a very, like, large amount of money in a very short time. Um, but then, I mean, I lost a lot of money as well in a very short time. So, so it was like, it, it was, it was, um, uh, that was 2007. Um, and the other thing that, although, uh, the other thing that he said to me was, which I still remember today, is that when you're early in your career, um, I mean, trading on your PA does not make a big difference it's really about investing in your own career of course I mean being the boss like that's there's an agenda in what what he was trying to say yes. but uh, if I think back it is correct as well uh, because yeah. investing in yourself investing in your career and uh, having a good habit of, of, of investing I think that would really accrue over a long period of time yeah. and I'm a, I'm, I'm, I mean I'm mean I started ultra marathon running when I turned yeah when I when I was 31 32 uh, right when I was starting a hedge fund I think that has a lot of parallel with uh, investing as well because investing is it's not a sprint right? it's it's a marathon is or is like actually an ultra marathon it requires a lot of focus a lot of discipline uh, and really finding what's most comfortable for you uh, I mean everyone is different but you have to find a way that works
0: no absolutely no I think that that's 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 super valuable uh, valuable advice for for the listeners. So thank you for sharing that, Stephanie. But I did have one more question. And you you, you talked about a few of the things, but do you have any other practical tips for having a successful career, right? So how do you keep focused? Any tips that you want to share with the audience before we wrap it up?
1: Yeah, I guess uh, I'm I'm, I'm super, (laughs) I'm like a super geek on productivity. So I try to optimize my time uh, all the time. Uh so I, I think having a having some some tips, right? Just I mean having a routine. Uh I have a morning routine to make sure that I start the day right. You have to start the day. So every day um is important because your like, your everyday makes up your life, right? So I wanna I, I would try to make sure I start my day in my best possible mindset and in my poss- best possible shape. Um, I, 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 I run a lot. So I do all my exercise in the morning. I have my morning routine, um, just to get my, my mind in the right frame, because as the day goes on, your willpower actually decreases, which is why also, I mean, you hear things like eat the frog in the morning, which is correct because at the end of the day, I just want to kick back and have a nice glass of wine. Yes. Uh,
0: so so, so and especially during COVID, right? This has been so difficult, right? To yeah, and having exactly. a schedule. By not, but if you're just at home, having a schedule is so important, right? And yeah. having uh, it's still your routine in place.
1: Exactly. And then also prioritize because there are so many different things that that we're trying to do in life. I mean, I'm a good example. I think I have I have a lot of different interests and a lot of different uh, things I like to pursue. I I've actually tried to keep myself to limits. So, for example, like every day, I tr- only try to do like complete three goals that I set for myself, so I don't get distracted because I'm I'm a person that gets easily distracted. Uh, and then, I mean, just I think also um, focus on like prioritizing things, also focusing on on some of the most important things in life, right? Because I think a lot of people try to uh, push themselves to do things that they don't enjoy. Sometimes it's necessary, like when I'm training. Like for a run, I need to push myself to, to like to the to the level where it's it's like slightly painful. But I think what's most important is you understand. I mean, why you're doing it? Because as you, if, if the why is very very clear, then you can go through the pain, right? Then the pain is worth it. If you don't know why, then maybe don't force yourself to to do something that you don't don't like to do, right? Uh, or find other ways. Uh, and then there's a few things that I don't compromise on. Uh, I don't compromise on my exercise time. I don't compromise on my sleep. These two are the most important. Uh, I also try, I also eat quite healthily. Um, so, I mean, just some tips because, yeah, as you get older, I mean, you need to kind of maintain like, these like No, absolutely. No,
0: like super, super good tip. So that's awesome. So thank you so much for sharing this, Stephanie. And to the audience as well. Hey, if you you know want to connect with Stephanie. I know she's also active on LinkedIn. Um, So connect with Stephanie if you want to learn more about Stashway and and what we do in Hong Kong. Also, feel free to reach out to Stephanie and the team over there. We have some uh, we have AMAs all the time, and if you want to learn um, uh, more on the investment side of things, actually myself, Stephanie, and our chief investment officer Freddie Lim. We have a separate podcast, uh, which is our market commentary on um, twice a month. So um, we will put the links into the show notes below as well. So you can uh, listen to that as well if you want to have a more investment-focused, more up-to-date show. With that being said, Stephanie, again, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, Have a great day.
0: That's it for the show this week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe and leave us a review. The reviews really help us and we love reading your comments as well. In Your Best Interest is hosted by me, Philip We're produced by Stashaway and we're mixed by Mo Ramley.